Friends, on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, there are questions that are rattling around in my head about our purpose as a community of faith. What are we about as a community of faith? What does our faith call us to do? How does it ask us to live and engage in the world? Why are we here together? These are not new questions, but they are more relevant than ever today. What is the sacred task of a faith community? Of course, there are a number of ways that one can answer such a question. We're here to care for one another. We're here to grow in spiritual depth. We're here to make the world a better place in the little ways we can. We're here to build our capacity for compassion and kindness. It is all of that, yes, but the core of it, the heart of it, simply put, is that we are here to discover and to reveal that which has been invisible. This is the heart of many religious traditions, certainly our religious tradition. It is to bring into focus that which has been on the edges, the periphery of our awareness. It is to give voice to those voices which have been silent. It is to see beyond the distractions and habits that blind and bind us. It is to awaken to the brokenness and the unfulfilled promises that surround us to see how our silence, our narrow-minded vision prohibits the full expression of our own souls. To see that and to respond with a moral and spiritual vision. The purpose of a faith community is to awaken and to see ourselves as agents of change and justice. And this was certainly the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Through civil disobedience and peaceful demonstrations and direct action, he wanted to make visible the injustices in our country, to raise the tension so they could not be ignored. He wanted to expose the deep rift between our aspirations and the actual practices of our country. It is this same fire of exposing the rift that has fueled the work of Black Lives Matter Minneapolis. The week before Christmas, as many of you know, Black Lives Matter Minneapolis gathered in the Mall of America. Many of us were there at this nonviolent, peaceful demonstration, and we lifted up the names of those black and brown people killed by police, calling attention, making visible the reality of bodies on the streets, calling for greater police accountability including that all law enforcement officers take implicit bias and cultural competency training. We gathered to make visible the reality that black and brown people are dying at the hands of police in a way that white people are not. This is but one symptom in a system of racial injustice that still exists in our country. What's been happening, what's been in the news is not news to people of color. What's new is that more and more white people are understanding we have a moral and spiritual obligation to address these unjust systems. What has been hidden 
for many white people is now visible to more and more of white America. The fatal encounter of black men between black men and police is not a Ferguson problem or a Cleveland problem or a New York City problem. It is a problem that reaches across our nation. It is a Twin Cities problem. On the same day, friends, stick with me here. Don't check out. On the same day that Marcus Golden was shot and killed by St. Paul police officers, Cottage Grove police officers, they spent 11 hours negotiating with and finally arresting a white man named Maxwell Quist who pointed a shotgun at police officers numerous times. This is from the Cottage Grove police officer press release who pointed a shotgun at officers numerous times and taunted officers to come in and get him. Marcus Golden is dead. Maxwell Quist is alive. Well, there are certainly unique circumstances to both incidents, it fits into a much larger pattern. If you've read the new Jim Crow, it's clear that people of color are often criminalized whether or not they've done anything. The Minnesota branch of the ACLU reports the racial disparities between low-level arrests. That disparity is astounding. It is for those reasons and many other reasons that people are shutting down highways and gathering at the Mall of America and choosing to walk tomorrow in the Reclaim MLK Day march. Let me pause for just a moment this morning to recognize that not all of us, probably the majority of us, will not march tomorrow, and that is okay. I understand that there are a variety of perspectives on all of this. Some of us will march. Some of us are attending workshops and learning and reading and reflecting. Some of us are working for policy change. Some of us aren't sure what we think about any of this. And for some of you, for some of us, I know just being here this morning, getting out of bed and coming into this faith community, that is all you can manage right now, and that's okay. There is room for all of that in this church. There is not one right way to work or to walk for justice. And while I'm speaking frankly with you this morning, I want to express my deepest gratitude to a number of you who have engaged with me over email and in person, shaping and challenging my thinking on race and racism and whiteness. I consider you a precious resource in my learning and development. And believe me, I am learning and developing in all kinds of ways. Just this past week, I met with police officers as part of a cops, clergy, and coffee gathering. It's to build relationships. We're just getting to know each other. It's Southwest clergy and police officers from South Minneapolis, but working to build relationships to better serve this community we are a part of. All of this brings me back to what this faith community is about, which is expanding our consciousness, expanding our awareness, expanding our capacity to hear and see different stories in this world. Stories that have too often, and people that have too often remained invisible. And so today, in that spirit, instead of focusing solely on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his life and ministry, I want to lift up some of the unseen change agents 
who paved the way for him, who helped him become the leader he was. The unseen change agents I'm focusing on today are all women, and their stories are told in this fabulous book called Freedom's Daughters by Lynn Olson. I recommend it to you. First, I lift up Ida B. Wells. Ida B. Wells is best known for her work in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. She was a journalist, an investigative reporter who worked hard to dispel the myths about lynching, the myths that black men were sexual predators and lynching was necessary to protect the innocence of white women. As Lynn Olson writes, through her investigative reporting and writing, she proved that men and women were lynched for economic reasons. They had successful businesses. They were, they were thriving as best they could. And that oftentimes, it was white women who were in relationships with black men. But the black men were punished. Ida B. Wells took heat for her work, a lot of heat from the whites in power. Lynn Olson writes in her book, in 1896, the president of the Missouri Press Association wrote a letter calling all black women prostitutes, thieves, and liars. In an enraged response, more than 100 local and regional organizations of black women joined together in forming the National Association for Colored Women, the first national black women's network. Realizing that these images of the black rapist and the sexually loose black women were designed to rationalize white society's determination to keep blacks of both sexes under its heels, the National Association for Colored Women listed as two of its main goals the elimination of lynching and an end to the image of black women as morally defective. Wells' outspoken leadership of the anti-lynching crusade in the 1890s also aroused black masculine anger. Wells wrote, I had been accused by some of our men of jumping ahead of them and doing work without giving them a chance. <laughs> Similar accusations would be leveled in the 1960s against Wells' female successors in the civil rights battle. So I lift up Ida B. Wells. Second, I lift up a Unitarian white woman, Mary White Ovington, who lived from 1865 to 1951 and was a founder of the NAACP. According to Lynn Olson, Ovington came up with the original idea and had been its principal founder in 1909. She had been responsible for bringing on the legendary W.E.B. Du Bois to the NAACP as the director of publicity and research. She would have preferred that the NAACP remained an interracial organization, but was nonetheless supportive when the transition was made to mostly black leadership and membership in the 1930s. So I lift up the name of Mary White Ovington. Third, I lift up the name of Polly Murray. Again, from Lynn Olson's book, in April 1944, Polly Murray, due to graduate from Howard University Law School helped lead the first sit-in at Thompson's Cafeteria a few blocks northeast of the Tidal Basin in Washington, D.C. Two and three at a time, Howard students slipped in, picked up a serving tray, were refused service, and sat down among other black students who had been refused service. Of the approximately 50 black students who sat in that day at Thompson's Cafeteria, most were women and all of the leaders were women. 
As Lynn Olson explains, the sit-in at Thompson's was the culmination of months of intense planning and training. The participating students had been carefully selected, then rigorously schooled in the nonviolent principles and tactics of Mahatma Gandhi. But the press wasn't much interested, and the president of Howard University ordered the students to suspend further action. Sixteen years later, with no mention of Pauli Murray, civil rights demonstrators would engage in the same kind of nonviolent resistance. And so I lift up the name of Pauli Murray this morning. Fourth, I lift up the name of Joanne Robinson, a demure college professor from Alabama State College and the real architect behind the Montgomery bus boycotts. Reading Olson's book, I learned, I did not know this about the boycotts. I understood the boycotts and the system of segregation and all of this. I did not understand that blacks had to pay their fare on the front of the bus and then exit the bus and walk around to the other door at the back of the bus to come on because the first 10 seats were reserved for white folks. I knew that. I didn't know they had to pay, walk off, and then get back on. Often the bus drivers would drive off after the fare had been paid and the women, mostly black female domestic workers, were left on the sidewalk. If the woman did make it on the bus, the bus drivers, all of them white, were, and I quote, mean as rattlesnakes, and they heaped obscenities and curses on those who entered the bus. From Lynn Olson's book, by the 1950s, the black women of Montgomery had had enough like women before them, they decided to fight back. Joanne Robinson was at the center of the fight. After Rose, Rosa Parks' arrest, working with others, Joanne Robinson printed 35,000 copies of the announcement saying, hey, we're doing a boycott. She snuck into the mimeograph room in the college where she worked and secretly ran off 35,000 copies. <laughs> I think she actually left one there, which is how they figured out it was her, but she had support within the university and they didn't call her out. She distributed, it was a women's network, they distributed those 35,000 copies around Montgomery saying, we're doing the boycott, here's what's happening. Here's part of the history I didn't know. Joanne Robinson's new pastor in Montgomery, a man named Martin Luther King Jr., was not excited about taking on the boycott. Up until this point, according to Lynn Olson, Quote, the black ministers of Montgomery had shied away from any attempt to fight segregation and discrimination. But once the ministers saw the energy and the passion for the boycott, their fear melted away as fast as an April snowfall. <laughs> the time had come, and the backbone of the boycott, the women, the backbone of the boycott, they were ready. The boycott lasted 381 days, and during this time, King became president of the Montgomery Improvement Association, and he began to step into that national spotlight. Joanne Robinson faded into the background, as did other women, because they had more to lose in some ways than the men. As Olson explains, most of the male leaders were ministers and professionals and entrepreneurs, and thus not beholden to local white employers. Many of the women were public school employees or Alabama state professors who would have been fired if their involvement in the boycott had been publicized, end quote. But more than that, more than that fact, black men and women were impacted by the norms of American society, norms that said men, straight men, 
were leaders and women were followers. Norms that said there is no room in public leadership for gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender or differently abled people. But behind the scenes, women were the organizing trailblazers, the driving force in a battle for racial justice. So I lift up Joanne Robinson. There are so many more names to mention. Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer, so many more. Read the book. I, I, had the, I thought I had the book here with me. I don't know where I put it. I was going to hold it. It's, a, it's an amazing book, friends. And I want, I want to end this morning with three final names, names which link this often invisible history I've just shared to what is happening right now in the Black Lives Matter movement. I want to lift up the names of Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi. These are the names of the three women who created the hashtag and the movement Black Lives Matter in 2012 after Trayvon Martin's murderer George Zimmerman was acquitted for his crime. In an article in the Feminist Wire, Alicia Garza explains, and I'm going to quote her at length here because this is really critical information and important for us to know. She explained in this article the vision behind the movement. Black Lives Matter goes beyond the narrow nationalism that can be prevalent within some black communities, which merely call on black people to love black, live black, and buy black. Keeping straight black men in the front of the movement. Well, our sisters, queer and trans and disabled folks take up roles in the background or not at all. Black Lives Matter affirms the lives of black queer and black trans folks, disabled folks, black undocumented folks, folks with records, women, and all black lives along the gender spectrum. It centers those, so those who have been on the margins are centered within this new liberation movement. She goes on to say, when we say black lives matter, we are talking about the ways in which black people are deprived of our basic human rights and dignity. It is an acknowledgement that one million black people are locked in cages in this country, one half of all people who are in prisons or jails. It is an acknowledgement that black women continue to bear the burden of a relentless assault on our children and our families, and that assault is an act of state violence. It is an acknowledgement that black queer and trans folks bear a unique burden in a heteropatriarchal society that disposes of us like garbage and simultaneously fetishizes us and profits off of us. When black people get free, everybody gets free. Black lives matter doesn't mean your life isn't important, she says. It means that black lives, which are seen as without value within white supremacy, are important to your liberation. When we are able to end hypercriminalization and sexualization of black people and end the poverty, control, and surveillance of black people, every single person in this world has a better shot of getting and staying free. When black people get free, everybody gets free. This is why we call on black people and our allies to take up the call that black lives matter. We're not saying black lives are more important than other lives or that other lives are not criminalized and oppressed in various ways. We remain in active solidarity with all oppressed people who are fighting for their liberation and we know that our destinies 
are intertwined. That's the end of the quote. So these people, these young people of color in the streets at the mall, these people that I am learning from and walking with, they are calling me to account. They are calling our white culture and society to account. So this morning, I lift up the names of Ida B. Wells, of Mary White Ovington, of Polly Murray, of Joanne Robinson, of Alicia Garza, of Patrice Colors, and Opal Tometi. These are the names of the unseen and often unknown change agents that I want us to see and to know and to be touched and transformed by. They packed and do pack a power that is helping to build the America that is yet to be. Their work, Dr. King's work, our work is not yet done. May the courage, love, boldness, and stories of these change agents, these powerful women, may that surround us this morning as we pick up the work that is ours to do. May it be so. May it be so.